Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 94 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and what matters today is golf courses, or more precisely, golf course architecture and the importance of that in the game more broadly. As regular listeners will know, recently the Australian arm of the State of the Game media empire hosted a golf course study tour to this nation's best public facility, the Barn Bugle Dunes courses in Tasmania. Myself and Mike Clayton were the hosts, him for the golf, me for the podcast, that's everybody playing to their strengths, and 11 keen students of golf course architecture also joined us for what was a fantastic three days of what would best be described as intensive golf therapy. Everybody, yours truly included, got the wonderful opportunity to tee up alongside Clates for several holes each day, and that was frankly two bucket list items rolled into one. Not only was there his unique insights into the golf holes we were playing, but the bonus was the rare chance to watch somebody up close who genuinely knows what they're doing with a golf ball. I suspect that most of us golfers have no real clue how good the pros are, and after seeing Clates craft his way around the Dunes courses, I came away even more convinced of that than I've ever been. This experiment was the first of what we hope will be many more of these combined golf course study and podcast tours, and what we learned on this first one will be critical for helping improve what we offer in the future. This one was a blast, but I reckon the next one will be even better. So without further ado, let's get on with the audio. The first 40 seconds or so of this recording, uh, there's a slight echo, which is undeniably a bit annoying, I know that, but it does disappear pretty quickly. And I did think about editing it out, but in the end, I decided to leave it because I really enjoyed Clates' answer to my opening question, and I felt like it set the tone for much of what followed. So please enjoy episode 94, State of the Game, Bamboogle June's Course Study Tour. State of the Game is about, funnily enough, the clues in the title, the State of the Game. So the first thing I wanted to ask you, Clates, we've all now had a chance to play both courses here, and it strikes me that as we sit and watch and listen, the chatter has been intense amongst everybody (laughs) about the courses and what we've played. Is, in fact, the chatter that's going on at least as or even perhaps more important than the courses themselves? Uh, No. I think the courses are always more important. But discussing them is interesting. And I guess the more people think about the golf courses they play and what makes a good golf course is important so the, um, Al Jamison in the Friday podcast was talking about Golf IQ members Golf IQ and how they transformed the California Golf Club through educating their members and kind of forcing those changes through that transformed that course he was talking about the IQ of members so the more you can kind of talk about and get people thinking about what makes good golf the better, probably, I think. Mm-hmm. So just discussing these courses and what's good and what Brian hates and what, you know, what, you know the eighth <laughs> hole. And thought we'd get that out of the road early. But, um, yeah, just discussing the golf and which course is better. And, you know, for me, I've always thought there was, out of ten rounds, you'd, it was pretty much a 5-5 five, five split here. But people have, you know, some people like Lost Farm, some people like Bamboo, like Bamboo Dunes. But I think if you're a Richard, that's kind of what you want. You don't want... Uh, the Royal Melbourne scenario not that you would ever criticise the East Coast because it's fantastic but if you were going to play at Royal Melbourne you'd probably play 8-2 or 7-3 but here it's a, and it doesn't matter so much at a members course but on a public course you really want 
you know the two courses to, to be some people liking one, some liking the other, and debating them and, and but playing them pretty evenly. You know, it would be a mess if you had one course that everyone wanted to play eight times over, two rounds on the other. I can't imagine anybody having more than 7-3 here. That would be extreme, I would think. Yeah, most I, most yeah. would be 6-4. Six, 6-4, four. Six, four, yeah, it's, it's pretty four, even. Five, I, mean, five. I think and it seems like people have got different preferences. I mean, some like one, some like the other, So, mm. which is good. That's what you want. Yeah. We'll come back to some of that stuff you've touched on there because there's some really interesting stuff about the importance of discussion, what it does for the game, and how do we educate without talking down to. And there's a lot of issues in there, many of which we've talked about. But for those who might not be familiar, let's start with talk about Barnboogle Dunes here in Lost Farm. Anyone who hasn't heard the story, you were involved in the design here of the Dunes course. Bill Corr, of course, did the, the farm course. How did it come to be? What's your recollections of how this course came to be. It's an extremely unusual story in the golf world, isn't it? Particularly for producing a world-class facility like we've got. Well, Greg Ramsey rang me, I think, or us, and said, you know, I knew who he was, I think, from Golf Club Atlas. Was he on Golf Club Atlas? Maybe, I don't know. Greg was kind of a... Anyway, we came down. I came down with John Sloan, who was my partner in the business. And we met Bruce Hepner here. Bruce was building Cape Kidnappers for Tom. And Greg kind of said, you know, this is the, here's my model, which was a membership model. Um, here's my dream. You know, I think it's a great course. I, he read us the I'll make you guys famous speech. And as we drove out the, the road there, Bruce said, I've met that guy a hundred times around the world, that same kid. They're everywhere. And he said, that place, is, this will never happen. And we drove out and assuming we were never going to come back again. And then... Did you think that at the time? Yeah, probably. I mean, you go down so many rat holes, you know, for Mm -hmm. chances to build golf courses that never come off. So next, uh, Tom came out, and he was enthused by it. He spoke to Richard. Richard was kind of... Well, Richard's view was, well, if you can make it work, then that's fine. To Greg, he, he, he wasn't... He was sort of a bit nonplussed at this point. Um... Tom got Mike Kaiser out. Kaiser thought it was a great idea. Uh, He told Richard to send the money back that had been contributed to the membership fund, which I think was $6,000 each. It was was 40 years of green fees, I think, was the model, for $6,000. And I think they raised about $300,000, so it wasn't going to pay for much. Um, uh, Barely paid for your lunch. Kaiser came out. Mike took Richard to Bandon, told the boss at Bandon that, or the manager that this is Richard Tatler from Tasmania. You've got a week to teach him everything I know about this business. So Richard came back with the view that, yeah, he would do it as a public course. And so we kind of got started at that point. Now, that was a, probably a, I don't know, maybe a two-year journey, probably, I can't remember, but... It opened at December 2004. Yep, sounds right. So um, it was probably two years ago at that point. Mm-hmm. But it was unlikely. And it was unlikely because Richard wasn't a golfer. He was a kind of a farmer who had hotels and clearly was clever. And But really it was Mike Kaiser was the one who talked him into it. I, Tom, Tom and I thought it would work, but I think we were, in fairness, we were the only ones who did. No one else. I remember Bruce Grant coming down, shaping bunkers, and 
had his head blown off for a week and came back and said, no one's ever going to go and play golf down there. It's way too windy. It's just crazy. <laughs> but you could see it was going to be a great course. So it's, you know, and Bandon have worked. Bandon was kind of the first public mm-hmm. out-of-the-way model that, and it was being successful. And whilst it had a whole lot of people who live pretty close to it, you know, we had Melbourne and Sydney, and I thought if the course was going to be great, then it would work as a business. Mm. And the, you know, the brief of the clubhouse here was, whatever well, doesn't work, um, make it like a house. So if it doesn't work, we can just sell in. I can just come and live in it, and live in it. we just live on the beach, and it'll be a nice house. Yeah. It would so, be a nice house, you'd have to say. Yeah. It'd be a nice place Which is actually sure. not a bad brief for a clubhouse. <laughs> it's a fantastic brief for a clubhouse. There's been a lot of money spent on clubhouses in Australia in the last yeah. X years, and. I think this was maybe one and a half. Mm-hmm. Richard took me to a, a guy who'd done a winery in Hobart. We went to this winery this architect had done. And he said, what do you think of this? I said, yeah, it's pretty good. I like it. So he hired him and, you know, the brief was, if, it, if the golf course doesn't do any good, Sally and I'll come and live in it. So make it, you know, so it was, and it's a great model for a clubhouse, really. I agree. And a thing like this, you don't want to be spending fortunes on clubhouses. I mean. They're the least important part of golf, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, I mean, people come here to, I remember when we were talking about the cabins, I said, just make them clean and make them warm. So you guys are in the cabins. I mean, the cabins are clean and warm. Is that about all they are? But which is perfect. So if, you com- if you're complaining about the accommodation in the cabins, you're probably not going to... Probably the Gold Coast is where you should be playing your golf. You're not going to get this golf, are you? Know, you're going to get pretty fed up with having your head blown off in 30-mile-an-hour you know, <laughs> winds and losing balls. And, you know, it's not the easiest course in the world to play in the bad weather, but... But it's kind of you go to Sandhills, the accommodation is exactly the same as this, and so it's for adventurous, intrepid golfers who like great golf. Really, building a golf course isn't a cheap undertaking. I imagine there's a million contracts to be signed between parties involved <laughs> when you undertake something like this. How did that unfold? You know, that's right. Um, well, John Sloan organised for me to bring a contract. It wasn't very long, maybe ten pages. I don't know. Down to Richard and. We sat in Richard's kitchen, which subsequently burnt down. <laughs> and, Nothing you did, by the way. We got a point. Um, <laughs> he kind of looked at the first page and turned it over. He said, "Do you trust me?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, we won't be needing any of this." He screwed this thing up like into a tennis ball shape and just threw it in the rubbish bin. So that was the deal, really. Which was, you know, and you can. I guess when you meet someone, you can always. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be a great judge of character to be able to trust, you know, think that Richard's a pretty trustworthy bloke. So um, there was never a crossword or a problem or we just did it, really. In a funny way, has that set the tone for what Barn Boogle's become and the success that it's been because of... The place feels like exactly like the sort of bloke who'd screw up a contract and throw it in the bin yeah. and say, let's just have yeah. an handshake deal, doesn't yep. it? yep. Yeah, he does it well. Yeah. And for, you know, for a guy who doesn't play golf, it was amazing. It was incredible for a guy who didn't play golf or know anything about the game would invest this much money and, and be this successful. At, and in a sense, it's a golf business. It's golf's mm-hmm. why people come. But really, it's a, it's a hospitality and it's a hotel venue. It's a, it's a lot of things that he's good at, and yeah. he gets that. And he lets other people do the golf and stays out of it. But So it's, it's been, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's great. Let's talk about the courses, <clears throat> which I think is probably the main interest of most of us. So tell us some things we might not know about Barn Boogle Dunes. When you came here, it was just marram grass and dunes. 
How do you lay out a course? How do you decide what you want to do? Who, who does what? Do you walk the course? How does that system unfold? How do we end up with the 18 holes we've got here? Well, the first thing was that the Wallabies had never seen humans, so they freaked out when people started <laughs> walking through. The, they would just jump around like mad things when they... I mean, now you play... We were playing golf tonight, and they just sit on the side of the tees yep. in the fairways and don't even move. Fantastic etiquette. So they've gotten so used to people. But um, the first tee, you, it was a completely blind shot. That dune that you played through, that dune was joined up. It was kind of 30 feet high, probably. Somebody said, oh, we'll just blow this out. Like, what? We'll just blow this out. And the first tee's going to go here, and you're just looking into the face of this massive sand dune, which just got... I can't remember who blew that. Maybe Jason in a, in a machine, but it took him three days to just blow through the sand and open the view up for the first hole. And 30 feet high? So largely the routing was Tom's, essentially. But the first routing... The 10th tee was right out the window here. Just out the front here. Playing backwards up what's now the 18th. Uh-huh. And then you played inland on a short par four going up the hill. Then I kind of forget. There was a par three, I think. some point you played backwards down 15, backwards up 14, then played another par three going towards the mountains. And then you finished on 11 and 10 backwards. And Mike Kaiser came out and said, no, nah, you've got to finish on the ocean, which was absolutely the right choice. So the routing on the back nine got completely flipped. But... Um, how are those decisions made, Clades? I think all of us here, at some point, you look at land and you think, oh, I could put this here and that there and, and this here and we could do that there. How do those decisions really get made in the ground? Because there's all sorts of issues, obviously, that come up. That... Yeah, I mean, there were, there, were, there were only so many ways you could go here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, It's lost, quite a narrow strip, At Lost it? Farm, there were lots of ways you could yeah. take in that golf course. But here you had to... The clubhouse had to be in the middle, I thought. Well, we, well apart from the fact that it was the obvious place because that was where the road from the farm came out at. If it wasn't in the middle, if it was at one, either at one or the other, you'd finish up playing nine holes going out against the wind or into the wind and then nine holes straight back with the wind the other way, which would be really annoying. Um, so it works because the club, with the clubhouse in the middle, you, you don't play long runs of holes into or down the wind. And it was, you know, clearly, aside from the last two holes, the, the prevailing wind was a critical part of how the holes were laid out. You know, you, um, the long holes are all down the prevailing wind, like five. I mean, we played five tonight, which was a five iron the first day when it was with a decent wind, but we had a three, we had a three with that tonight. So it's, almost, it's, funny, it's a funny course in the sense that it's almost harder when there's no wind. Because the long holes are really long. You don't get any help. Holes like, you know, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, playing so much longer, 13, 14, are so much longer when there's no wind. And there's and really, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, even in a decent wind, are not that long. They're all pretty playable. Mm-hmm. So the only holes that are crazy in the wind are the last two, which are, what, are both 400 metres, I think. But I've played, here, I played with Jeff Ogilvie when he first came down. Both It was a, well, it was a wind like yesterday, and we played, went to the back and... Well, it was when, you know, when he was the, might have been the US Open champion. You know, it was certainly around when, when he was one of the best players in the world. Mm-hmm. And he didn't get anywhere near either of those friends in two. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's heartening. Anybody else feel good yeah. about that? So, I feel good about that. So, critical, you know, so I mean, a clearly important part was making the yeah. course work with the. And, it, and it's funny, it actually it plays pretty well with the wind going. Not that it does very often, but it's kind of fun. We played here, I played here with Huggy one day. 
John Huggin, you guys know Huggy, and he um he was on the first for two, he drove it on the third, and he drove it on the fourth. Wow, which is a pretty amazing start. So I think he was, I think he two putted his way to three under after four. Then he was in trouble after that. <laughs> <laughs> he sure. got, to the, got to the fifth, and that was that was an end. Surely the sickening knee high fizzer is the knee-high perfect fizzer, shot yeah, in the yeah. uh, in the coming wind. into the wind. Yeah. <laughs> So it's kind of fun to play this course because it's never that strong when the wind comes the other way, but it's quite fun playing it that way. But it's mm-hmm. difficult. So anyway. I asked you today how many times you've played the course. I think you said about 100, do you think? Probably, you've played yeah, probably. It's been, what's it been, 15 years probably? I don't know, come down twice a year and play five. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I probably play 10 rounds here a year, so you can figure that out, 100, do the maths. But How come you're not bored with it? Shouldn't you be bored with a golf course after 100 times yeah. around? Well, because you no, because I think you. It's always asking you to hit interesting shots, mm-hmm. and there are so many different shots to hit. So today, you know, I was playing with Brian when we. The easiest shot on the course was the was the the driver into the thirteenth. This is a lost farm for those. This is a lost farm. The property, yeah, which is pretty flat, and it's just such. I just you top a driver, and you top it two hundred yards. Well, it was a pretty good shot, but you know, so there were so many shots you would never hit on a normal course. To 15 feet, to yeah. 15 but, feet. Yeah, it was pretty, but anyway. Um, like the punt? No, I, missed, I think. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because there are so many different shots to hit. And there are so many different ways to play the holes. And, and you're always, you, you, we play a game here for fun where you're not allowed to land your shots into the green on the green. Mm-hmm. You've got to land them short and bounce them up. And that's a, you know, there are lots of holes where you can do that. You can't do it at seven, but you can do it pretty much everywhere else. Mm-hmm. So it's much more interesting than a normal course where, where you just play it normally. You just hit a drive down the fair and hit the ball on the green. Mm-hmm. And you know, this, this is, offers much more than that, which is what St Andrews does. That's why St Andrews is so great because you know, this course, whilst it doesn't... Well, it's, you know, it's lengthy and it's by the sea, but you know, St Andrews is incredibly interesting because there are so many different ways to play those holes. Mm-hmm. And this course catches... The elements of that, that really sort of film, which raises an in- interesting question about scoring and its role in the game, and we're obsessed with it in Australia, in particular, and yeah. competition golf. Yeah. And a lot of people will come here for the first time; they'll be staggered by the fact when they walk into the pro shop that there's no comp to play in. Um, what does that do? How does that fit with a course like this? It feels to me like this is about everything that's not that. Yeah, I've, I've, I've scored once. There was a pro-am here. That's the only time I've ever scored on the golf course. I, just, I think it's just a place you come What'd and you play. What'd you shoot? What'd you shoot? I don't know. Yeah, what I shoot, yeah. <laughs> it was windy. Um, 77 or something, but it was, it was a brutal day. It was crazy. Um, I guess the point is about... That goes to the heart of what golf's about, doesn't it? With the yeah, score is the most important. But lots of people would say that golf is about the score you shoot. Well, I don't think it is, but... You know, I shot scores for 20 years on the tour, so I'm over shooting scores. But a place like this is about hitting shots and having fun. And, you know, it's, for the average, I mean, you've got the average players, it's, you know, you, even though the fairways are incredibly wide, it's pretty easy to lose balls. I never figured out how you could lose a ball here, but lots of people lose lots of balls. But Didn't you lose one today? I did lose a ball. Honest, yeah, I did lose you. a ball today. Um, <laughs> wasn't that bad a shot either. But, um, and if you scoring well, comps comps are tricky because if you play off the, the the best way to play the golf course is to pick the right tee for the conditions mm-hmm. of the of the day and pick tees that set up interesting holes. So we played the eighth tonight from the ladies' tee, which I'd never done before. 
drive a six iron. Really, you know, it's really good hole. Fantastic, fun, great fun. Um, but as a general rule, going into the wind, you want to go forward, and going downwind, you want to go back. But if you're having a comp off the terracotta tees, then you're going to play every hole off the. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll play the end of the wind holes will be pretty much about right, but all the downwind holes will be wrong because you'll be playing too far forward. And, and even the terracotta tees are too far back if it's into a wind like it was yesterday. So you want to go. So you, you can't really have a, a competition and get the most out of the golf course because you're stuck on tees that are often in the wrong place for the hole. Mm-hmm. Um, if you played a pro tournament here and you got rid of all the coloured tees and just set the course up, you could set it up so everyone. W- Obviously, you can't have a competition where players are choosing which tees they play to suit their game and have a competition amongst 80 players that's going to be a complete shambles. But if you set the course up for a tournament, whether it's just one tee and you, you set, the, set the course up around the wind, then it will be fine. But, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think this place is about scoring. I think it's about playing golf, which doesn't make, that won't make much sense to a lot of people, but um, it's much more fun than... Golf is much more funnier than going out with one ball and shooting whatever you shoot because it's I've just always enjoyed going out there and hitting lots of shots and not worrying about what I was scoring so it's a, in a sense a great match play course a great course to play matches but not so much for 80 amateur golfers at a club to go and play a club competition because the tees are all going to be wrong for all the, the wildly different mm. abilities of the players the, the joy of there not being golf competitions here as a formalised thing is that you do get to choose if you want what calls to play, don't you? You're not locked into one set of tees. You can do what we did yeah. today and mix it up and play off the whites and play off the blacks and play off the blues and yeah. pick the tee for the hole. We don't do that much in golf, do we? Golf's the only game that actually allows that. All other games have very set lines yeah, and boundaries do. and golf doesn't. Yeah. And we never make anything of that, don't you reckon? We, yeah, I think we, we miss out on stuff. Yeah, I think of? Yeah, we don't have enough variety. People, you know, the handicap system says you can't go, you can't what, you can't change the course more than eighty yards. Is that right? Or what, and, and you can't go more than twenty yards from the. This ridiculous trying kind of system to try and make this ludicrous handicap system work. Mm-hmm. When yeah, it's much more fun if you if you can create more variety and more. I mean, the eighth, the eighth hole of Metro, for example, is a great hole off the women's tee. Well, you can't play off the women's tee because, well, there's your 80 yards gone in one hit. So, mm-hmm. you know, so we, we're far too formulaic and predictable in how we set up golf courses. I mean, it's far too, there's too much obsession with the handicap system and competition golf. And, but it's what most people play. So I guess if that's what they like, that's fine. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think. If people want to do that, that's fine. But, you know, I think it's, golf can be more flexible and more interesting if it's more adaptable or, or it's allowed to be more adaptable. Mm-hmm. So, and that comes to comes down often to the imagination of the superintendent. Yeah. So, I guess the bigger question about that, Clates, is is the game more broadly appealing if it's like what we have here than a homogenised culture that people from outside come into for the first time and they're told these are the parameters and they don't shift. Yeah. So, it's probably an unanswerable question. Yeah, well, what do you, you think? Know, about? Well, we were talking about before about you know the obsession with having par seventy twos and 
not finishing a course with a par three, and you you know there's no great course in the world, but this is a, this is a good one. There's no great course in the world with two back with back to back par threes. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> obviously the bloke who made that most statement had forgotten about Cypress Point <laughs> and Pacific Dunes. They're two of the top best fifteen courses. Well, maybe the, one of the best two or three courses in the world. Yeah. You know, so people get obsessed about rules of what golf should be based on silly notions that are clearly not the reality of what golf is. I mean, most of the top 100 courses in the world aren't past 72. I mean, you know, there are Swinley Forest is, what, 68? I mean, it's a brilliant course. Muirfield, 71. Shinnecock, some 70. Merrion's got uh, the second par five is the fourth hole, and that's it. You don't pay a par five once you get to the fifth tee. So, I mean, how, if you were trying to sell that to a committee, how would you sell that? You know, we've done this routing for a golf course we think it's potentially one of the best 10 courses in the world but there are only two par fives and it's a par 70 and there's not a par five after the fifth tee well you have no chance zero chance Mm -hmm. if you Royal Sydney can't make the 18th hole a par three then you know that's a that that would be a much easier sell than having no par fives after the fourth hole yet Marion's one of the best courses in the world St Andrews has got two par threes. Cypress so Point, obviously, two par threes in a row. So, if the game got away from this kind of amateurish notion of what conventional golf is, it would be good. Championship courses. Championship. Courses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and you go to Scott. I mean, the last line I think in Tom Doak's little red book is that I think it's everything you need to know about golf you can learn in Scotland, mm-hmm. and that's kind of true, really. You know, we, we tried to make the game fairer and more predictable and standardised it when, in fact, that was not what golf was at all in Scotland. It still isn't. Still isn't, standard. yeah. Still isn't. And people are starting to figure out slowly after 300 years that golf in Scotland's actually pretty good and pretty fun and doing well. Yeah. Does that make it even more important, perhaps, that Richard wasn't a golfer, Richard Sattler, the owner here, because he doesn't bring those preconceived notions, does he? He's not the owner yeah. that says, I want to build a golf course, I want it to be a par 72, I want it to have the toughest par 5 in Australia. He doesn't bring any of that, no. does he? He allows you the freedom. Yeah, and with a 13th green here, you know, Tom said, I've always wanted to do something like that Simple Park green, and this is my chance because Richard's not going to say anything <laughs> He's got no it. idea what the He doesn't care, he doesn't know what Simple Park is and <laughs> never heard of it, and he's not going to... So, yeah, there are lots of owners and clubs who would never build that green, mm-hmm. and lots of memberships who would think it was ridiculous. And the one that did have it blew it up. <laughs> yeah, Simple which park. was that might have been the single worst marketing decision any golf club <laughs> exactly. has ever made ever. And Sitwell Park, I mean, no one goes there. I don't even know where it is. I think Alison <laughs> Nicholas was a member there, yeah. and Tom Tom asked her about it, and she didn't even know about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, if that had, if that left that green there, it would have been a pilgrimage for every. Mackenzie devotee in the world <laughs> just how could, you, how could you blow that up yeah it's amazing but I suppose it speaks to this facility has a it's too much to say an important role in world golf but it does play an important role in the game doesn't it Barnboogle Dunes here shows us as does Bandon Dunes and a couple of others some of them private sand hills and whatnot, shows us what golf can be and can introduce golfers who might not otherwise think about it to what golf can be in a way that they might not have thought about before. Everybody here who's got an interest in architecture didn't start the game with that interest no. in architecture. It develops, doesn't it? Yep. And it develops because places like this exist. Yeah, well, why it was important was for the first time ever, Australians could play a 
two courses in the top 50 in the world or top wherever you want to put them but they're, they're roughly around there so for the first time public golfers could play two great golf courses I mean the Duncan Andrews had done the Junes at that point and the Junes was I guess was the best public course in Australia by a long way but when he did that but to do something that was truly significant on on a world terms was great for golf because before that you could I mean how many people could play Royal Melbourne I mean Royal Melbourne is a uh, you might not want to say a public course, and it's not compared with Augusta. It's a, it is oh, a public no, course. No, it's, it's pretty easy. Royal Melbourne are great. It's not that hard to get on. No. But how many people actually get on Royal Melbourne more than more than once in their life? And you know, so this was the the building of a place like Pebble Beach or St Andrews or Pinehurst, where the everyday golfer could come and play one of the best courses in the country and some of the best courses in the world. So it was important in that sense, and important for for tourism I mean golf tourism is massive but you know for Tasmania to have two of the best whatever courses in Australia was pretty significant for tourism and you know this the, you know, Mackenzie wrote about the golf course being a great asset for a nation and you know it's not I don't think it's that big of a stretch to say it's, you know, it's been a big thing for Tasmania this and Mona and you know they're, they're massive tourism attractors and you know, there, are, there, are, there are thousands and thousands of people who would never come to Bridport who come here because the golf course is here There's 14 of us here, anybody else coming to Bridport if Barn Burgle's an idea I don't think I'm going to be lining up. I suppose that speaks to a broader question as well then Clay. so what is the role of architecture in the popularity and the spreading of the game, it's the most frowned upon subculture in golf where the golf snobs, yeah. uh, the people who are interested in architecture. How do we overcome that and how does that educational role... Having a public access courses like this is hugely important. I've brought myself here three different people with no interest in architecture who've all left yeah. being interested in architecture, then had a lobotomy somewhere over the Bass Strait on the way home and <laughs> completely had no interest in architecture again when they got there. But... But just the importance of architecture and golf being healthier if arch- golf course architecture is better at all levels. Which is Mackenzie's point. The spirit of St Andrews was that people give up golf without knowing why. It's because they're not playing a real course. You know, they're just playing a bad substitute for it. And you know, he revered the old course and you know, what do you call the old course? The only first-class course. There's no second-class course and Cypress Point's a very bad third. So... He, he clearly understood that the future of the game was about letting people play interesting golf courses. And there are lots of really boring golf courses out there, and there's a place for boring golf courses probably. But ultimately, you know, people who truly love the game and enjoy it and get into it, at some point have got an, an appreciation of more than just nice grass and nice views, and, but they, the golf's actually interesting to play and varied and different and... You know, and it's not about everyone agreeing on what's good and what's not, but because everyone takes something different from the game. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's if the game is boring because the golf courses are boring, then the game is not going to do very well. Mm. But if it's if the golf is interesting and and it's good, not only on a superficial level, which I mean, I get we get all, I mean, I get tired of people going to a new course and commenting on how great the condition was. I don't care about that condition one. You know, well, maybe one dot, but you know, so how good are the holes? Are the holes any good? Mm-hmm. You know, you can have the most perfectly conditioned golf course. If, if the holes aren't very interesting, then mm-hmm. at some point you get tired of it. 
There's plenty of greatly conditioned golf yeah, courses. Of course in, don't, yeah, the, don't hold much yeah, in the way. Plenty of courses in beautiful condition that you get tired of pretty yeah, quickly. Yeah. Because they're not built on very interesting pieces of land or they're not particularly interesting golf courses to play. So the question is, you know, how, how, how many people can recognise a dull golf course when they see it? Especially if it's in beautiful condition. So, you know, so if, you, if, you've got, if you nail the condition, you, get, you tick a lot of boxes for, with most golfers, but... You know, as Mackenzie said, people get bored with golf without knowing why. So they go shopping at Chadson instead. You know, <laughs> that, that, that becomes their Sunday afternoon recreation. Is like, yeah, hard to fathom. That's the that's stuff about the golf business, though, isn't it? And that's what complicates golf in a lot of ways. Is it is this business side of it? There's a the whole retail sector that relies on golf. This might not be the most marketable golf in the game is there is it necessarily this sort of golf what we've got here yeah well it's too windy for lots of people mm-hmm. some of the time but it was not I mean it's fantastic today it's great yeah but yeah, it's kind of we've got the ideal weekend really where you get one windy day and one calm day and who knows what it is tomorrow but um, yeah not everybody's going to love golf here you know it's if you get a hard tough day and it's cold and then it's you know it's not the golf for everybody but if you're, a, if you're a, I think, a sporting type player who likes the sport and likes the fun, and then it, no matter what the weather's like here, it's, I mean, I've never been here where it hasn't been unplayable. It's always been, even in the biggest winds here at all. I mean, I've s- smashed four irons. I had a little four iron yesterday at the seventh, but 100 and, was it 20 yards? 20, 22, yeah. I've had days here where I've smashed four irons, like hard, hard four irons into that hole and made the green, but, you know, that's a, it's tough, but it's you know you can play the golf course like that. Yeah. You might not shoot seventy two, but you can play it. Yeah, indeed. It's called State of the Game, the podcast. What is the state of the game? We at a crossroads. State of the game. Um, a lot of stuff going on, isn't I'm there? Kind of golf? optimistic because I think it's a great game. I think you, people who are pessimistic about golf it kind of don't do it any favours because it's such an amazing game to play that. You have to be optimistic about it. I, mean, I think Mackenzie was right about the, 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 the state of the game, the future of the game is about good golf courses. And, you know, we've probably got, given that you know, places like this have come up and you know, been built and public golf's much better than it was, certainly in the southern part of Australia, that perhaps there are people who are deciding that, you know, they're not going to go and join a golf club, they'll go and play St Andrews Beach in the Dunes and Moonalinx and they'll come here and you can play some pretty decent golf without having to join a club now. So, you know, what's the future of golf clubs is the biggest question that games, certainly in Melbourne, the game's going to have in the next 30 years. And we're going to see, I mean, the course where I grew up playing, Eastern, got sold for houses, $100 million. They moved out to the Yarra Valley, Croydon the same. Kingswood closed up, merged with Peninsula. Point Lonsdale, which we're building now, sold four holes, got enough money to buy some new land and rebuild the golf course. So, uh, there, are, there are lots of different scenarios that will play out in the next 50 years and the ones who do it well will succeed and the ones who make bad decisions will completely mess them up. Have we seen the end of large-scale new golf course building, do you think? Are we now in an era where Probably making better that, what yeah. we've already well, got? What were most of the new golf courses? If you went through the new golf course in Australia, I suppose there was this, these two, Cape Wickham, Ocean Dunes, which are basically remote public golf model. And lots of them were housing deals. 
So when you hear about golf courses closing in America, very often it's that they've just failed real estate developments, and the golf course just comes along with everything else that forecloses. Doesn't do golf any favours. No, does it doesn't. That, no. that perception is, is yeah. used to close so, more golf courses on public. So we build many new golf courses in Australia in the next twenty years, maybe a few. You know, there's Seven Mile Beach if that gets built, or Arm End, or you know, Kangaroo Island. There are, there are a few possibilities, but. Rand Morris said, said on what was that? What, where did he say that on? I can't remember. Was it was it with us? No, was it was anyway. It doesn't matter where it was. He said, "Golf's already got enough courses. Yeah. You know, we need to take care of the ones we've got and, and look after them and make them better and or make them better." Mm-hmm. So, I mean, our business, I guess, we've done a lot of you know redesign work, and I think we've made a lot of golf courses that were pretty good, made them made them better. So, better golf is always good. So, if you can make golf better make it more interesting, more fun to play, then that's arguably a better way for the game to head. And that was Rand's view than, than just continuing building new course after new course. And I mean, Australia, you know, does Australia need needs better golf? I don't think it needs more golf. In fact, argue, you make an argument it needs less golf. Self, yeah. You know, pare it down, invest in what you sell, reinvest in other golf courses to make them, which is the Peninsula Kingsford model. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, you can, I mean, it's always emotional when the club you've loved and played at for a long time closes down. I played at Eastern for, so I started playing. I carried there, started playing there. I was there for five or six years. I played pretty much every day. And you see it with, see it with houses on, it's horrible. I hate it. But, you know, the, tree, the trick is to, if you could do that, then make better golf somewhere else and make, make a, a club that, probably wasn't viable as a, certainly wasn't viable as a, well not certainly, probably wasn't viable as an 18 hole course and golf needs to be, I mean I think Easton should have thought about staying where they were and building a great, selling off the bad holes at the back which is where we lived, 5, 6 and 7 and building a great 12 hole course and see how that went and if, and if that didn't work then someone's always going to pay you 60 or 70 million for what's left and then you can go and do so, you know, so, so what's the I mean Sydney's full of uh, I won't say bad average golf but only because they've jammed 18 holes on land where there's room for 14 mm-hmm. so we're better off having a compromised average to poor 18 hole course when you could have had a great 14 hole course because you had the space to spread out and not jam it so much and, and compromise everything for it so in a sense, you know, this is a bit of the state of the game question, but does golf need to be more inventive and get away from this 18 hole? You know, it's not a legitimate golf course if it's not 18 holes. And most people would think, well, you know, I don't want to play a 14 hole course, but would you rather play a great 14 hole course or a bad 18 hole course? Well, mm-hmm. to, for me, there's only one answer. But if, yeah. if someone who wants to break 80, then he's going to say, well, how can I ever have a goal of breaking 80 when I'm playing a 14 hole course? Well, we'll just you know, figure it out. Just breaking out. Fig- no, not figure it out, but, you know, <laughs> with good design you, uh, and time sheet, you can go and play four holes. You, know, you, you, you can play four holes again and have, have double greens or different whatever. You can, you can kind of make an eight-in-hole routing that, you know, that works. Yeah, it's all part of that homogenisation. So, so, so it's being inventive, isn't it? It's not just let's just go and build another eight-in-hole golf course, but how do clubs survive and thrive in a, in a market where fewer people are joining them and, but it doesn't cost any less to run them? You had a bit of a temper when you played, didn't no, you? That was awful, yeah. Wow. Any, why? any idea why? No, I was angry at... I don't know why. 
Because you're not like that. That's no, not you, I, is it? No, I was mad at my swing and my game. I was frustrating and I just got cross. And it was kind of silly, really. Immaturity, partly. But doesn't help, does it? No. Doesn't help you go. I can't imagine getting mad now. Like, what were you doing? Mm. Such a pointless... Anger is such an, a pointless emotion on the golf course. It's kind of useless, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Doesn't serve well, I, came, I came for Sue at the British Open at Turnbury and she got in the ninth hole the third day and pulled it down the left, but not very far off the fairway. And there were two spotters down there. And they kind of, I knew they didn't see it. It's going to be a problem. And they, we walked down. They said, no, the ball went in here somewhere. Well, I kind of knew it wasn't there, but they said it went there. And for four and a half minutes, we look around there. Can't find it. I walk up 50 yards, 40 yards up. Here it is. And the rules officer said, ah, sorry, that's 15 minutes, five minutes and 15 seconds. At which point, I was kind of pretty headless. <laughs> and she just went over to the bag and grabbed a driver and just went back to the tee. I was like, I would have completely lost my head. <laughs> it was like, this is actually really embarrassing because I know how I would have reacted. In fact, I did. I, thought, I said, that was the most ridiculous ruling I've ever. You saw that, those two spotters. Yeah. For four and a half minutes, lead us around that pile on grass over there. Incorrect place, yeah. 50 yards from where the ball was. And I found it 15 seconds past five minutes. And you think, really? Yeah. And she was technically, she was perhaps right, but hmm. um, I'm not sure John Paramore would have done that. <laughs> no, probably not. But, about- but the point was how well she handled how that situation. You. And it, was, it reminded me of how badly I would have handled it. <laughs> Indeed. Who were some of the characters on the European tour? You played from the late 80s, no, mid 80s? Early 80s. Early 80s. 80s? Well, I went there as an amateur in 1980. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Who was the first lunatic you encountered? There's plenty of lunatics in golf, isn't there? Yeah. Um, Simon Hobday was there. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know very well. He was kind of finishing up, but he used to just put his clothes in the bath on Monday morning and put the detergent in and swirl them <laughs> around with his putter, dry them, wear them, never iron them. I asked him in the clubhouse in Switzerland if he could put something on, so he put his underpants back on his head. <laughs> well, he, was, he, was, he was nothing he was, on. He was nude, wasn't he? Yeah, nothing yeah. yet. Not, Sitting in the clubhouse nude. Yeah, so Hogday was a legend. Um, people complain there are no characters in golf anymore, uh-huh. but they don't look hard. Now, the characters are not the best players. They never were the best players. Uh-huh. Even, even you know, Trevino was a great character on the golf course and an interesting, great, interesting story, but he was a completely different person off the golf course. Uh-huh. But, you know, guys like Tony Johnson, who was a dear friend of mine, was a, he was so funny. He would lose his head on the golf course, and, but he loved golf, and he was great to be around, great fun. I'd go out to dinner with him, and, you know, he was a, there were lots of guys there who were really good guys, good fun. And, you know, Frank Nobolo was a, you know, the Australians were great. You know, we all, it was barely across whatever. You know, the generation before us, there was some friction of, you know, Marshy and David Graham didn't get on particularly well, and... Greg had his moments with Jack and Newton and those guys, but you know we all got on incredibly well and enjoyed each other. All good guys and we had lots of fun together. Mm-hmm. What do you? And Sevy was a character. Sevy was kind of, you know, he was a proper. Well, I wanted to come to Sevy, yeah. but you've opened the can of worms now. You, you once told me that the players adored Sevy. Yeah, they did. Yeah. What do you mean by that? And why? Why did? Well, they, they all wanted to be him because they all wanted to play golf like he did, and. What was he like to be around? He was great. He had an infectious, incredible smile that would light up. If he walked in here now, everyone would go, wow, they would look at this, this guy walking with this cashmere jump around his neck, and he it was, it was the coolest guy ever. Mm-hmm. And he played golf the way we all wanted to play, and he had every girl that we all wanted. And, 
you know, he had all the money, and he had the, he, and he, he was a, he was a good guy. He was a really good guy, mm-hmm. and he helped people. You know, he would give lessons to. He would help if you asked him. He would help. He was great. Did you get to play with him much? Yeah, I played with him a decent amount. Yeah. You know, probably five or ten, probably ten times. But and I watched him a lot. I watched him play a lot of golf, mm-hmm. and he was. Yeah, you know, was what proper golf was like to watch. Interesting. You know, you, what do you mean? Well, he would hit shots that. He watched Graham Marsh play golf for 18 holes, and Marsh was a tremendous player. And he would rifle it around the golf course and not make a mistake in 18 holes and hit nearly all the fairways, nearly all the greens, and he'd duff a couple of bunker shots and, you know, leave a bunch of putts short and shoot 69. And that was. Well, I wish I could play golf like that. But then you would watch seven. But Marsh, he wouldn't, he wouldn't leave you with a shot that left you with your mouth open. But Seve always did. Mm-hmm. Even when he was lost his game at the end, he would still do that. So, What are some of the ones you remember? Oh, the ones I remember. I remember watching him in Madrid one year. Greg Turner and I played early and we watched him play and it was windy and the seventh hole at Porto de Hero was a dog leg left, short path for up the hill. Seventh hole, eighth hole. And that was kind of a hook with a three wood. The out of bounds left. He took this driver and he ripped it down over the... It was a stubby, sort of not high pine trees, but low. This driver that just went, ripped it down the line of the pine trees on the left and just cut it back into the middle of the... Completely the wrong shot. Mm-hmm. Like, it was an amazing shot. And then nine was a high tee going down into the wind. And he smashed this, this beautiful nailed hard driver straight through the wind. Amazing shot. Ten was going back the other way uphill with a big downwind. He just hit this thing way up in the air. And the people thought Seve was a bad driver. I mean, he had so many great drives, that guy, because he hit so many different I mean, Marshy would hit 14 shots with his driver, all out of the middle of the club, all exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You know, a great driver. Mm-hmm. But every shot, he didn't do much with it. Well, you would work it around, and if it was the end of the wind, he'd hit it lower. And he'd get, but Seve was hitting these incredibly inventive, amazing shots. But the shot, you know, behind, well, you, know you were there. It was, it was long after you were there. Gone, Robbie. But um, well, we've got a the shot from, of Clayton's here. <laughs> the, the shot from behind the wall in Switzerland was incredible. The, and the amazing thing is the two greatest shots Seve hit probably out of the bunker at the Ryder Cup and over the wall in Switzerland, neither of them were on TV. On TV, yeah. It was just incredible, isn't it? unforgivable that both of them were on the 18th hole, the 18th hole of the Ryder Cup, yeah. in a close Ryder Cup, yeah. and, close, and, the, and the 18th hole of the Swiss Open, and neither shot they ever got on film. Just bizarre. Mm. So, um, yeah, Seve was just... The Royal Melbourne going at the 10th green every day, ripping drivers of that green, and, you know, again, people thought he was a bad driver. Four days he hit it up. You could have put a blanket over four balls that were... They didn't get to the green, but they're in that sandy... Left of the bunker, they're up in that sandy, heathy stuff where he just blew it out to about four foot and tapped it in. And So he made, I remember him making a great par at the 17th at Royal Melbourne where he cut it in the trees on the right, in the cypress trees, before they planted all those trees down the right of the 17th east. And he could have chipped it out sideways. It was an easy shot to chip it out sideways, but he couldn't have got to the green for three. But he had a really hard pitch through the branches and the trees to get it 50 yards up the ferry where he could get on for three. So he went for this really... No one would have played this shot. Was, well, I would take the risk. You know, you're never going to make worse than six just chipping out sideways. Could have made eight if he'd hit the tree. But he got this thing out 50 yards down the fairway. Then he carved this, threw it up into the short right bunker. And, the, and he, so he's got a 40-yard bunker shot. He hit this thing out to a foot. It was like, how do you do that? You know, I mean, no one in the world would have done. Greg, no one in the world would have done that. Mm. He made that. I mean, just he made five, and he hit. 
you know, wild drive, great pitch, wild three with amazing bunker shot, tap in five. <laughs> so Marshy would have gone, drive up, <laughs> three on short of the bunkers, where's to 15 foot, left an inch short, tap in five. <laughs> you know. So... As would you know, that's how Peter Thompson would have played it too, and most of the field would have played it. Yeah, Greg, yeah. Greg would have whacked it over the bunkers up at the front of the green and chipped it up to four foot and made birdie, and mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, there's an endless number of shots that Seve hit that were incredible. Mm. That's when golf's exciting, isn't it? Some players can bring excitement, can't they? Yeah. They, they hit amazing shots, yeah. they do amazing, but not and many. They, and they're charismatic. I mean, yeah. charisma is a overused, overworked world word, and um, he was. I don't know, he was one of the only the very few people I ever saw who ever had any who ever had proper charisma. Greg probably had it to an extent, but Seve was the only one I've ever seen who really had mm-hmm. charisma like that. Where he he could walk into a room and no one knew who he was and everyone would look at him. Who's that guy? Wow, look at that guy. Just he was just I don't know what it was, but it was the look and he he had it. He just had that a presence that was wow. Was it? He was it. He was it. He had it. Yeah. And who who did you run with in Europe? Who were the who were the players that you ran with, and why? Um, who was in the gang? Chris Moody was the English. He was our English mate. He was Moody was not a very popular English player. They thought he was Moody was a good looking guy. He was smart, and he, people thought he was pretty arrogant. But he was a good guy. Moody was a great, and he liked the Australian. We good. Moody was great. Billy Longmuir was great. Um, Tony Johnson. I mean, the, the, David Frost was there for a little bit. David and Linda, his first wife, we got on really well with my wife and I. So they were, but the Australians were. You know, we we hung a lot together with the Australian guys. But everyone got on pretty well. I mean, you know, we finished up. Domingo Hospital was a came out on the tour later. Been an airline pilot and came out and played. The, came out on the tour as a thirty-year-old. And we somehow struck. I think because we were both interested in. Well, he knew who Tom Simpson was. Okay, so he's off to a good start. Yeah, he's off to a good start. So we, we had an interesting golf course design. And, and one year we were both struggling to keep our cards and we, every week we would look at it, you know, how do you, I, you know, did I beat him this week? And <laughs> we both finished up making it easily in the end. But, um, but yeah, I mean, everyone got on pretty well. The thing was we were always away from home. The English guys would come home and go home. We would just come home and we were, well, in the end we had houses over there. But, you know, we, had to, we stuck together because we had to really. So now players go overseas and they've got the internet and they've got Twitter and they've got Skype and they've got Facebook. I mean, it's not the same as being at home, but how's it different to what you were having? For example, I recall you telling me one day how you used to get the football results. Yeah, the, foot, the AFL results were always in the Telegraph on Tuesday. 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 Monday, Tuesday. Maybe, probably Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Quarterman had it. There was a football show on Sky over there, I think. AFL, there was an AFL show over there for an hour. Which we used to watch. I used to get the bulletin sent over, <laughs> but you couldn't find anything. I mean, there were, Kate, I mean, if you're in the city, you would go to Australia House to read the papers. I mean, imagine that! <laughs> How ridiculous was that? So it's there was different. no, there was nothing. You didn't hear anything from the home. Mm. You know, phone calls were prohibitive. They were crazily expensive mm. to ring home. Airfares weren't cheap. And airfares were the same as they are now. So you know, given what you were, I mean, I, you could easily play the European tour from here now. Yeah, we players do. We were living over there from March until October, really, which by the end was ridiculous. I mean, we you know we should have come home, but it was expensive, so we stayed there. But I mean, now you can play from here, and because so much half of the European tour is not even in Europe. 
No, it's halfway from yeah, here. So it's, yeah, it's, in, it's a better or different places like Saudi Arabia. It's not better for going to Saudi no, Arabia. It's not better for going to Saudi Arabia. It's um, it's better. Uh, it's, yeah, it's better. Well, you can you can play all year now. I mean, tour only went from April. Went from April. It was starting. Well, that, and that, in the nineties, they started playing in places like Tunisia. Dubai was late eighties, so they were kind of expanding a little bit out of the continent of, of Europe. Where were the good so, places to play? Uh, Sweden was good, Ireland was good, England was good. No, most, no, most, yeah, I mean, France was great courses in France until they went to the Ryder Cup course, but Chantilly was a great place to play. Port Marnock was great. I think uh, as the tour wore on for me, the, there was always a great reason to go to a bad golf course, which was annoying if you liked architecture. But they were playing for more money, and most guys, it was the job, and well, if you went down that coal mine that week, that was where you went, and if you got paid, they were happy, and they went home again. But yeah. you know, playing bad golf course the week after week was kind of—I hated it. Craig, I think you got a question for us. Craig Wanis. is that on? Clayton, to you, like if if you were the most influential person in golf, and I guess that's probably if you were um, Augustus Ridley for a day, because I don't know if it's all USGA or, or the RNA that really own the power. What, what would you be looking to do to change the game? Or what, what sort of things would you be looking to, yeah, to move the game forward if you had the power to do so? Oh, Zah for a day, Clates, you. For a day. You'd stay up all, all night and all day for a start, wouldn't I'd you? Make you golf wouldn't balls. sleep. I'd make golf balls a dollar. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Why? Well, they want to grow the game, make, make it cheaper to play golf. Uh-huh. I pulled apart a golf ball the other day. It's a cover about as thick as a bit of paper and a rock inside it. And what are they selling for? Eight bucks, seven bucks? How would you know? When, was you, when did you last pay for a golf ball? Uh, pardon, uh, yeah. you, you arrived here and Pete gave you a dozen. Yeah, so, yeah, well, this I, week. I actually came here prepared to buy some golf balls, so <laughs> Pete, thanks for those balls. But um, at the pro level, the ball goes too far. And I, don't know, even, I don't know how important this is. I mean, for, for average, I don't see you guys hitting the ball too far. And I don't think you guys need to lose any distance. But at the pro level, the best courses in Australia and around the world were built to test good players. And that test has been obsoleted by the ball going too far. So the first thing you do is make the ball go shorter at the top level. The second thing is I think in all our lives, we're probably, have we de-skilled ourselves? I know I'm de-skilled in, I can't remember a phone number anymore because all the phone numbers are in my phone. I can't write anymore because my handwriting is horrendous. It was disgraceful 15 years ago, yeah, in fairness. Yeah, in fairness it, was it was never good. Bad, but <laughs> we've all, our phone tells us where to go in the car. You don't need to go, go through three roundabouts, turn left at the McDonald's, go right at the supermarket, look for the red post box on the left. And, you know, so, and we've got these massive-headed drivers that everyone thinks helps people play better, but... We're completely de-skilling people. You give them a, foot, a tennis racket head to hit with. You know, the skill of hitting the ball out of the middle of the club is... I, I see average golfers shooting higher scores than they would shoot with... I was going to say hickory. Probably not hickory, but with the, with the old guys I played with, oh, I never hit the ball offline. They, didn't, they would miss hit it, hit it on the ground, sky it, heck it and heel it, toe it. But they would get it into play... These big-headed drivers of de-skillers, it's so easy to hit the face and so easy to get away with so much that I see the ball going sideways now with that thing. Not that you're ever going to change it, but I think that's been just another example of de-skilling people is giving them clubs that are so easy to hit that they 
forget how to hit the middle anymore. So what's the downside of that if you de-skill the game? What's the downside? If everyone can hit a 300, why is that a downside? Well, well the, for, a sub, for strong guys who swing the ball club at quickly, but with a ropey, with average techniques, they hit the ball sideways five times around. So if you're a golf course architect trying to solve boundary problems, it's impossible. The ball goes places you can't imagine how crooked that goes. Um, the downside of the pro level is that power, golf was always a pretty democratic game. Now if you're not powerful, you can't play. And everyone, in fairness, everyone's powerful. Everyone knows, if you're a young kid now, you know you've got to swing the club at 120 miles an hour. Otherwise you can't compete, probably. So, but it obsoletes the golf course. I hate seeing Royal Melbourne. And Royal Melbourne will be played with a pitching wedge this year at the President's Cup, basically. I mean, Tiger played Augusta essentially on Sunday when he went through the clubs of the press club. He basically played with a driver and eight iron on a course that's 500 yards longer than Royal Melbourne with no run, which every hole at Royal Melbourne is going to be a wedge. So, I mean, I think if Alice McKenzie came back, I think would be, he would be apoplectically angry and heartbroken at seeing that golf course not being played the way he desired to be played. And sure, he wouldn't expect that the second hole on the West Coast was going to be played with a driver and a three-wood perhaps, but to watch it play with a driver and a nine-iron, you'd go, well, what happened here? Mm-hmm. Didn't you read my book? <laughs> didn't, didn't you understand? You know, I told you to fix the ball. Yeah. And this was the, you know, this is the upshot of years and years of lobbying by the manufacturers and inaction by the bureaucracy. So, so I would fix that. But, but in the end, that's not a... Most amateurs probably don't care about that. But I think at the top level of the game, that it's important that that gets fixed. And it'll get fixed at some point because the last state of the game we did with Dennis Pugh, he was talking about, you know, he said, what's a, what's a high ball? 180 is a high ball speed now? 180? So, yeah. He said, there'll be, there are guys at 225 now. Those long drivers are at 225. There'll be guys who'll figure out how to get us to 200. Then it's going 350 in the air. At some point... They're going to have to say this has gone beyond reasonable, but you know they're like lobby. They're, they're lobbyists. They're like they're no different from the alcohol lobby, the gambling lobby, or the cigarette lobby, or the you know they're, they're lobbying to make the ball go further and further. The people who make them because they're selling hope to you guys. That's what they're selling is this ball's going to go twenty yards further than the ball, than the ball you bought last week. Haven't we been selling the sky will fall in message for generations, and it hasn't fallen in? Isn't that what people will tell you if you... Well, I think you could argue it did. What happened, the history of it was what... If you play golf in London, you'll see a lot of great 6,000-yard courses. There were Swinney Forest, New Zealand. Woking was probably 6,400. Sunningdale was 6,400. So they were... You know, Woking was... Sunningdale was the... Bobby Jones played that famous round there, 33 hits and 33 putts. 926. So that was the famous round. He was playing that with Hickory, and that was a long course. And Swinley Forest down the road at 6,000 yards was probably not that long. So when the steel shaft came in and the better golf ball, that obsoleted all those courses. They all, they all of a sudden became obsolete for the top-level players. And then, the, then it pretty much levelled out. 7,000 yards became the standard. Steel and Ballada from steel, what, to the early 30s through to the early 90s probably was that 60 years where the balance was pretty good and no golf courses got obsoleted you know courses like Kingston Heath which was 6,800 yards stretched out to 7,000 but you know 7,000 was still considered long now 
7,500 yards of Augusta with no run and, and, the, and, the, and the fairway grass cut back into the grains of the board and Tiger's playing with driving eight iron. So at what point do you, you know... Stop the man. You know, you know we, we already did obsolete a whole bunch of golf courses at 9.30 and then the game was pretty good for 60 years. Now we're going to obsolete a whole bunch of courses that are 6,800 yards for, for, for good players. Mm. Or, or top level players. Top level players, yeah. yeah, elite players. I mean, there are lots of good players with the ball turn of, you can be a good player at the ball turn of 40 yards and Yarra Yarra at 6,000 6, 6, metres is perfect. But, you know, and people think it's just tour players. I mean, you know, there are a bunch of kids at Metro who fly at 300 yards. I mean, Metro's a driver wedge course, really. They all are. That's crazy, isn't it? Peter Shaw. <clears throat> uh, I've played here probably a dozen times and uh, one of the things that stands out to me when I play around here um, unlike a lot of the courses especially that you see on uh, TV, whatever, these days is the colour of the course and that flows through with how the, the course plays it's sort of like for, the firm and fast conditions often aren't related to green and uh, one of the things that happens around here is often the ball will not stop on the greens and won't stay still on the green. So a shot can take 30 seconds plus before you end up with a result. Uh, I certainly don't see that on tour golf. I don't see that on a lot of club golf. Uh, but I would suspect that certainly when you play at St Andrews and places like that, that that was the way that golf was played. Now, whether that's accessible for the pro game, but are we heading uh, into... Uh, Areas where agronomy is based on what we see rather than what's best for the game. Yeah, well, clearly, yeah. Augusta, obviously, is the, the Augusta effect, the famous Augusta effect, which is, you know, and condition becomes such an important measure of the quality of a golf course for lots of people. Like I said before, you know, how many people, oh, the course is in great condition, I don't care. The hole's any good, was it interesting? So, yeah, and, and green is good. Green is a measure of what a golf course should look like because people watch too much TV from America and think when we think back to that open at Hoylake in 2006 when the place was the colour of the tables here and it was fantastic. But I remember doing a couple of radio shows and Jared Healy saying, "How bad did the golf course look? It looked terrible on TV." <laughs> well, you know, you don't often go off and go to a golf tournament and never hear one player complain about the golf course. I mean, Hoy Lake was amazing, but it was brown because it hadn't... And which the English or the British get right is that if it doesn't rain, the course is brown. If it rains, the course is green. That's what it is. But, you know, there's a, we're better at it here. But I think we still obsess about condition too much. I mean, I hear people come here and go back, oh, I played at Bambooga last week. It was in terrible condition. So it's funny. Every time I go there, it's perfect. But their definition of perfect is what Metro is, which is... I mean, I can honestly... I've played there for... 45 years, since, since I redid those fairways, every single lie I've had is exactly the same. One lie is never any different from any other lie on the fairway. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, mean, I, think, I, don't, think it's a, I, mean, I don't think it's terrible, but I think golf's more interesting when you're playing a course like this where every lie is somewhat different, a little bit different. You might finish in a divot or you might finish in a, you know, a, a cuppy lie where the grass is a bit thicker or the or the, on a ridge, where, on a mound where it's a little thinner, or but every lie you, you at least looks a little different. But this reverence for perfect conditioning is cost too much money, and it's not it was never part of the original game. Mm. But we, so we, we obsess too much with that, and we judge too much by that 
I think. Yeah. I've got a solution for oh, you. Well, yeah, right, and it costs a lot. I mean, yeah, so the question is, if you have a, a $1.9 million maintenance budget, you cut the budget by half. You can say you go to a million. How long does it take before anyone notices anything happened? And is the golf course, in five years, is the golf course 50% worse or 10% worse? Probably might be 10% worse. It's certainly not going to be 50% worse. Well, there was a funny story about Richard here. Richard, um, Julian Robinson asked John Sloan to, well, I think he asked me what the budget was at Bamboo to maintain the golf course. And I said, I think it's about 600000 He's like, what? So he called Richard up and said, is it true that the maintenance budget at Bamboo was six hundred thousand dollars? He said. Is it true that you, how cheap that maintenance, maintenance budget is? It's six hundred thousand dollars. And he said, Rich said, well, that's true. But he said, I don't think that's cheap because Julian was spending some crazy amount of money. So he kind of slashed his budget for a little while. But um, and what's Port Ferry? Port Ferry with three guys in the ground. I don't know what they spend, but and it's not in perfect shape. But it's in really good shape for golf. But you can bet their maintenance budget's nowhere near 1.9 million. You can bet it's way under a million. And, and, and is it, you know, twice as, is, is it half as good? Or it's fine. I mean, it's not, you know, how much, what percentage of the condition at Port Ferry is under, is it under a course with a $2 million maintenance budget? Certainly not. It's not that much worse. There's a diminishing return, isn't there? Two things, guys. Got a solution for your constant fairway lies there at Metro. Just miss a fairway occasionally. You'll get a different line. <laughs> Peter Carroll, you got a question there for Clates. Yeah, there was a little glitch at this point with the wireless microphone, but one of the attendees, Peter Carroll, uh, suggested that he'd done a bit of a survey around the club and that there was a general feeling that maybe the modern golf ball felt very hard compared to the old ballada balls. And he wanted to know from Clates if, uh, if Clates thought that a softer golf ball might be a good thing for the game. I don't know. What do you reckon, Clayton? I never thought about it. Does it feel different to you, the modern ball? No. The only way I know it's different is when I go and try and hit it with a persimmon driver and it won't go. I can't get it in the air properly. I can, but it doesn't, it doesn't go like a bladder. It fly like it used to. Yeah, it's kind of... I mean, Jeff Ogilvie can get him in the air because he's got enough speed to get it up. But mm-hmm. So that's the only sense. Like, that's the only time it feels different to me is when I hit it off wood and it doesn't go like it used to go. But uh, does a ball need a softer ball? No, I'm not sure. I don't know. Spinny, spinny ball? I don't know. Just need a ball. I mean, I, the best thing for golf would be if they could make a ball that went further for women, especially. Mm-hmm. You know, slower the clubhead speed, the better yeah, the result. The faster the clubhead yeah. speed. How the much less... better would golf be for women if the ball went yeah. 40 yards further? Mm. Or old men or young kids or whatever. You know, yeah. you but know, just why, not for the elite player. Yeah. You know, why is it... Why is, why is it 36 handicap, 70-year-old grandmother playing with the same ball Tiger Woods is. Yeah. Rob Williamson, you've got a question for Clates. Is it, why did he sack you? <laughs> Twice. Why did he sack me? Yeah, Chris Moody was easier to caddy for. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> well, Moody's was pretty easy to caddy for. <laughs> did you caddy for Moody? I caddy for Chris in the same year, so I worked for Aussie... So it wasn't a completely yeah. bad year then. Aussie more and then, and then Chris Moody and a couple of others. But uh, you... Uh, I think the clubs obviously contribute to the distance issue 
as well, the club heads. Is that why you gave away your ping driver on the uh, 18th <laughs> at Wentworth back in 1990? Because you were hitting it too far, is that right, Clay? It was a shocking drive, wasn't it? Just, just trying to be easy on your yeah. competitors? Yeah. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah, I want you to tell that story, and I've got another story I want you to tell in a minute too. When you play with ping, you got paid way more if you used 14 clubs. Mm-hmm. So I had... How much more? How I much did you get paid? Just out of interest, can you remember how much? I can't remember. Enough to buy a house, enough to buy a car, nah. enough to buy a tyre. I had a couple of decent years. I made like 75000 or something from them. For the year. Yeah, it was That's all right, good. isn't it? It was good. In the 80s and 90s. For me, it was really yeah, good. No one else was going to pay me anything, so it was good. Yeah. Um, but I thought I'd get this ping driver in. Robbers came for me. We played the British PJ at Wentworth, and I took this thing out in the practice round. I hit it pretty well. I like this driver. Persimmon, which is it was wooden, yeah. Wood, it, was, yeah. it was laminated, wasn't it? Was it laminated? It was laminated. Laminated, It was yeah. shocking. Weird shaped thing. And I had the practice round. I went out in the pro-am, maybe? I can't remember. On the range. Still, this thing's still going pretty well. Thursday, well, it was Friday morning. Well, we started on Friday. It was a bank holiday, so we finished on Monday. So we go to the practice team on Friday and I'm not liking the look of this thing. This thing's looking a bit ugly. <laughs> Everything's changed. And I get on the first tee, you know, Ivor Robson on the tee from Australia and I tee this thing up. I look down the first that went with 480 yards and I go, I hate this club looks so I'm not going to hit this. Any, horrible. I, go, I, snap, I snap it and I left shit. I think I did. Shocking. Shocking, yeah. Horrible. And I tried it again on the third. No good. Fourth, he didn't need it. Six, you didn't need it. Seven, you didn't need it. Eight, you didn't need it. You, you hit way left on one hole and then criticised me for not getting the right yard. <laughs> and then, and then I, I think I had a good shot down nine, and a good one down 11. And I thought, ah, oh, it's all right. And I snapped it off 12 <laughs> and snapped it off 13. And I gave it to a kid on the 18th tee <laughs> and went back to the Cleveland. I made the cut. It was a hell, I remember three wooding it around that back nine with a, it was not much fun. It was a long way to go, but yeah, so that was a, that was a great lesson in, yeah, just don't take don't, the money. Uh, just don't take don't. the money. Try it, well, yeah, and try and try it in a little, don't try it in the British PGA, which was the right. biggest, <laughs> which right. was the biggest tournament in Britain outside the Open, but yeah. that was a bad. But you, you, you said to me, if you ever let me use anything else than the Cleveland. Yeah, I've still got that club. That was but a great driver. Two weeks later, you tried a metal wood Did I? at the Italian Open. Well, that was, I don't remember that, but that was, that was in that kind of changeover when lots of guys were using metal woods and yeah. you, know, you kind of knew it was coming. And you, I, they, and I, they weren't and I, great, though, were they? I were hated clubs. them. They were yeah, awful they clubs. Yeah. Awful. Those little tailor-made things that, if you, with a wood, if you hit it in the toe, it would go to the right and hook back. Hit it in the heel, it would go to the left and cut back. With the metal things, if you hit it in the toe, it went straight right. And in the heel, it went straight left and never came back. They were horrible things. Mm. The only guys that were using them were the guys who were getting paid to Get use paid. them. Yeah. That was shocking clubs. Indeed. Brian Walsh. And we'll avoid <clears throat> the conversation about the eighth. So you're talking about your father taking to see a pro tournament. Yeah. So I took my two sons to see their first pro tournament, oh, yeah. which was the Vic oh, yeah. Open of Woodlands. <laughs> and yeah. Clades can pick the story up. Well, I was playing with Matt Griffin yeah. and Tom Prowse, right? So let me get this right. No, Nick Flanagan. Nick Flanagan. Or Tom Prowse. No, it was Nick Flanagan. No, it was Tom Prowse. Oh, it was, and it wasn't Matt Griffin. No, it was Matt Flanagan and Prowse, right? Yeah, we so I'll you come let, on the I'll sixth hole. Yeah. <laughs> we get to the sixth of Woodlands and I hold a 80-yard wedge, right? Correct. 
Seventh green, Flanagan holds it across the green. Yep. 35 foot. Eighth hole, Tom Prowse in. Hardest, hardest part three is him. 200 yards plus in. So the first three kids, the first three holes these kids have seen, in with the sandwich, in with a 35 foot putt, <laughs> holding one with a five on. It's like, this is a, how easy is this game? <laughs> My son goes, these guys are really good. <laughs> well, this it game's was, really easy. It was actually completely ridiculous, wasn't it? it was, when you think about it now, it was bizarre. Yeah, he held that five on. It was like, wow. Do you remember why they call Rob Yeti? Yeah, he, <laughs> he, I thought it was Ross Drummond, but it was Grant Turner. First round, he walked, it was in Italy. Where was it? Italy, Spain? Montpellier. Montpellier, what a dump that was, yeah. Um, Ogle's first one. That's right, Ogle one, that's right. Yeah. He was walking around the green, and all of a sudden this ball came careering across the green, just kicked it. <laughs> what are you doing? By accident. Yeah, by accident, yeah. <laughs> Don't never kick a ball. Not good. Not a... Uh... Well, it's okay if you kick the guy you're playing with. It's okay if you kick his ball. Yeah. Just don't kick my ball. <laughs> Which he managed mercifully never to do, but anyway. Uh, indeed. Brian, another from you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting here is I don't know if many people in this country really understand how much value they get from Barn Burgle. And we were talking earlier tonight that... Bandon Dunes, which is probably an equivalent resort in terms of the quality of the golf and the golf courses, is probably north of $1,000 Australian a day. Yeah. And here you're probably hard-pressed to spend 300 um, And I'm guessing at Bandon Dunes, you're really not playing in the afternoon where you're a five standing on the tee waiting for the eight to clear the green in front of you. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, this is... I mean, to two top 50 courses in the world... At the price you're paying here is just ridiculous on the world stage. I think you've said it a million times, haven't you, Clay? I mean, there's a difference between price and value, isn't there? Yeah. This is the best value golf yeah. in the world, is it? And he's never put the price up. I mean, maybe he's put the price up 20 bucks in 15 years, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's the best value well, for the, what you get. I mean, look at the ridiculous extortionate green fees there are all around the world at places that aren't, couldn't, clean this, couldn't clean this place to shoes, really. What, were your, what was your policy on green fees? Nobody. Nothing should be more than the old course. Nobody is allowed the to charge course, more the than the old course. The old course should be the limit. What's the old course? 170 quid? Something like No one should be able to charge more than 170 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. That's the bar. Maybe it's a... Yeah. Pete, you're showing him. I remember going to Turnberry with Jeff Senior, Peter's brother, who was the tightest bloke in the world. And it's a competitive category, class. It's a competitive category. He was right there. <laughs> 1979, the green fee at Turnberry was 15 pounds. He wouldn't pay it. Really? No, we went to walk it. I'm not, I'm not paying that. Is that right? So we walked him, but yeah, which was kind of 15 pounds. Come on, Jeff, we can afford that. Nah, nah, too much. There's what is it now? What's Trump charging now, Turnberry? 300? 300 quid? Um, two quickies, question without notice. Who, who's, the, who's the worst player that's got the most out of themselves that you've... The worst player who's got the most out of themselves? Look at go... How the hell have they done that? And they've and they've actually been a pretty decent player. And then answer the question is Nicholas or Tiger? Who's better? Because that gets asked all the time. And yeah, Tiger. Has anyone played golf better than Tiger? Nope. No. So he's no. played the best golf, but the record's still the record. Sure. Aiden's still. Mm-hmm. Who's the worst? I don't know. Moods was the sclaffer, wasn't he? 
But Moo's got, he got, he, Moo's got a lot out of it. The, Australia, the Australian nickname for Moo's on the tour was Billy Barrett. Anyone remember Billy Barrett? A famous drop kicker. Drop kicked it. Moo's was the greatest drop kicker ever. So we used to call him Billy. That's another Billy Barrett. Um, what about, so, God rest his soul, but Roger Mackay for some for, for, he, he didn't have a great the swing or didn't but, have a great looking. But yeah, yeah, Roger was, Roger was a dreadful player in practice rounds. He was a hopeless practice round player. So, converse question: Who are the best players you've played with who haven't made it, and why do you reckon? Because there's a million of them, isn't there? Blokes who can flat out play who just don't make no, it for some reason. No, no one who can flat out play never not make it. Really? Make it. Yeah, no. If you can flat out play, of course you made it. That's a good point. Yeah. I edit that bit out. I really sound really stupid there. Yeah. Who no, was no. living in there? Um, should have. Guys, guys who could really hit it. Who? Yeah. Well, let's, um, I was a guy called Per Brostead, Swedish guy, mm-hmm. who was. Pear, you remember Pear? No, you don't remember Pear. He was um, he had a great swing, technically a really... Bob Tusky told me he had the best swing he'd ever seen. Wow. And he couldn't hit the ball anywhere. But ortho, really orthodox, very, really good swing. And he came out to Australia. We played, went and played the old first at Commonwealth. First time I'd seen him play in a year. And he stood in the old first at Commonwealth and he flew a driver onto the back of the green, like 280 yards. Said, what happened? And he said, oh, I was in swing. Someone told me to learn how to high jump and go and do high jump exercises. Dennis Pugh wrote about it in Golf Australia this month, about high jumping, springy, springy, of the, the, how high jumpers spring yeah. off the ground. And it's got 30, 1983 or 84. Someone in Sweden told parent, go and learn how to high jump. And he put 30 yards on in a year like that. He did all, all the exercises high jumpers did. Went to the gym and worked like a high jumper. So, but Pear never did me. He was really good. I don't know what, why, what happened to Pear. He was a really good player. High jumper? Are you yanking my chain? High no, jumping? he told me to go and learn how to high jump. Well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? When you look at the golf now and they're talking about True. springing, that exercise Molinari's doing, going down yeah. and springing off the ground. And, mm-hmm. you know, I guess it, it, in terms of, you know, using the muscles that high jumpers use to get that amazing yeah. spring and well, clearly works. speed and flexibility and it worked. Jim Benepe, who won at Kingston Heath, who flushed it. What happened to him? Well, he, went got, he got an invite to the Western Open. Oh, fatal. Uh, no, no. <laughs> he won the, the first tournament. He's the only guy ever to win the first tournament he ever played on the US Tour. And then he just never... Because he, he flushed it. He was really good. He had great action. And then he kind of disappeared, didn't he, really? Yeah. He got, got into real estate. And, but he, yeah, I mean, he was... Bampy was really good. Last one from Brian, then I'm going to turn the tape off and we can yeah, keep talking. Just, just great drivers of the golf ball on the European tour. And it's Forge Van. Forge Van. He was... What they call what they call his... Woods. The, pa- the passengers. Um... <laughs> He was playing the British PGA went with Pete Coleman was caddying for him. You know, he used to caddy for Bernard Langer. And he was missing the cut. 77, 38, something. Not, you know, not close to making the cut. Hitting irons off every tee. Couldn't get it on the course. And Coleman said, look, if you ever want to be a player, you're going to have to learn how to hit the driver. Every hole from in, in here from the 11th tee, because the 10s are part three, that hit the driver and he shot 51. <laughs> oh, wow. Just 50, just terrific. 
He could hit it so crooked, it was amazing. But he was a, I saw him play at Castle Hill once. Might have been the best nine holes I've ever seen. I mean, it was shot 20, maybe he'd shot... He won yeah. a few times, didn't he? He, he was really good. Yeah. Fortunately, it was point, terrific. Yeah. But when he was crooked, he was like <laughs> unbelievably <laughs> crooked. Dear ID. There you go. He, he could hit the thing off the charts. There was the stories about, you know, can you believe where Forsbrand hit it today? I remember playing the... <laughs> playing the... 10th at Woburn this ball like ploughed into the trees behind the 11th green <laughs> I'm walking we're going down and I was like where would that come from <laughs> what and Forsbrand comes off the 9th Fanny was coming for him comes off the 9th across the 9th across the <laughs> can't imagine how crooked that was it was like unbelievably how many yards offline do you reckon oh 100 100 yeah 100 yards offline beyond belief how far offline it was wow Golf he was eight. good. He could play. Forsman was really good. When he could drive it. Yeah. Golf A, the greatest game of all. Clates, we must all say, can we all just give Clates a little... Right. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> Always great to listen to you talk about golf. And thank you to all of you. And a round of applause for yourself, if you care for, for uh, turning up and putting up with... Yeah, and nice work. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, and look, I hope it came through on the recording there, but my goodness, what a terrific time we all had down there. And to, li- to sit and listen to Mike Clayton talk about golf, well... That's a bucket list item in itself. That wraps up episode 94 of State of the Game. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed playing and talking for this one. We'll be back to do it all again soon here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.